0: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor at large of Recode. You may know me as the organizer of a popular board game night for tech CEOs. They always want to play Monopoly, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Franklin Foer, the national correspondent for The Atlantic and former editor of The New Republic. His most recent book is World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech, which just came out in paperback. Frank, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: So honored to be here.
2: So we ran into each other at a Washington, D.C. party the other night. As which one is prone a, to do. An odd one and late. It was by David Gregory. Thank you, David, for having us. It was a delicious meal with Beth Wilkinson, his wife. And it was really interesting. It was my first big Washington party since living here yes, part time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was to hear how, how have
3: things changed?
2: Uh, it's it's an interesting. It's I feel like I'm in the Hunger Games and I'm living in the capital. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's a really it's nothing really. I thought it would be I different. Would, I, would, I
3: would love to hear you uh, at some point go on about the contrast between the cultures of the the Bay Area, well, and Washington DC. I think
2: they talk only about tech there and they talk only about politics here, right? Yeah. pretty much yeah. tech tech gossip versus political gossip right. and stuff. And it degenerates into Trump. All of them degenerate into Trump, <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about that That's with a you. Condition so modern life. L- l- let's go through your, your history. You have a really amazing history uh, journalistically. Um, you worked for the New Republic. You were mm-hmm. in the New Republic and have been in Washington and written about policy and all kinds of issues. You're now at the Atlantic, which has now all the... How's the money doing over there with the Lorraine's it's, it's money? It's pretty good.
3: <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Between the time... So they they serialized my book last <laughs> year. and in bet- in The chapter they serialized was the chapter about how Silicon Valley was swallowing journalism. So it goes into galleys and the Mm -hmm. print issue, as Mm -hmm. you know, has an insanely long lead time. And in between the time that it went into galleys and the time it appeared... Uh Laureen Jobs had bought The Atlantic. And part I, of it, right? No, part, part of The of Atlantic. I looked, and I looked like a punk. Yeah, but, you did. Yeah.
2: But that's okay. She doesn't yeah. care. They don't no. care. They don't care about anything. And so we're going to talk <laughs> about that, too. There's so many things to talk about with you. Working for The Atlantic, you cover—you had a—just give me a quick history of your where you've been. You've been to—where did you start?
3: Okay, so my first job was actually at Slate, which was then owned by Microsoft. And yes. so the summer— So you've been
2: working for tech people your whole yeah, life?
3: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can't escape it. Yeah. So, yeah, the so Microsoft, as you will remember, yes, wanted Michael to build— Kinsley with Michael Kinsley, but they wanted to build a media empire. And so they, they started an entire fresh campus called Red West where yes, I, I went have. to. And it was kind of the archetypal tech paradise yeah. where with a gorgeous cafeteria, a waterfall running. But you had to the,
2: pay for the food there, which did. is unusual. You did. Microsoft not, is cheap that yeah, way. Yeah, they gave yeah. us the
3: drinks right. but not the food. Right, um, yeah.
2: Red West was always interesting to me because they were like, it's Red West. I'm like, you're like 500 y- million people feet away from Bill Gates, and that's the only important thing at yeah.
3: Microsoft. Yeah. Well, do you remember they started, they, they had a women's magazine called Upwire? Oh,
2: I remember all of them. Yeah,
3: wonder why that Mongo, one failed. Not <laughs>
2: Mungo Park. No, it was, up, was it Upwire, Upwire? Upwire. Yeah, on the first, on the MSN, MSN 2. Yeah. MSN 2 had all those, and right. it was all dark, and the comic appeared. Oh, yeah, I was. Yeah. Around, I wrote about all that.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What was
2: it? Did they have Mungo Park? No, that was Discovery. There's a whole bunch of them. They right. were all bad.
3: But they were going to become, they were going to become oh, the yeah. new media empire. Yes, they were. And, um, but alas, that they didn't thought I work was out. mean when
2: I said this. I snickered at them the entire time. This is mean. We can do it here. But, you know, there was Michael who was so talented up in—and Jack Schaefer was there. Yeah,
3: exactly. They were all there. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, they were going to uh, sidewalk with their uh, competitor sidewalk. to the that's City right. Papers. And they took the And they
2: took a lot of Washington Post people at the yeah. time. Yep. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, and, and then MSNBC, of course, yes. was the other and great uh, bastard child yep. of that yep. <laughs> shotgun marriage. <laughs> they
2: just put a lot of money into a lot of things. And now they, they're they into the cloud. I think right. that's all they're doing. Now. Yeah.
3: So I was there for—I mm-hmm. was there for a couple years. Right. and. One. By the
2: way, Slate was a great product.
3: Yeah, it At was. At the same time,
2: it was a great—thank you for the money, Bill Gates. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it, was a, it was a revolutionary was. magazine. And mm-hmm. for a chunk of time, it was one of the great magazines, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. And it was actually pretty fun. I mean, I, do, I mean, you remember that time probably. You, you had more exposure to that than I did. Mm-hmm. But just the feeling that everything was up for grabs yes, at that absolutely. moment and that there yep. were no rules yep. and it was just really – it was mm-hmm. uh, exhilarating. You could experiment. Mm-hmm. So I did that and then I went to work for uh, The New Republic, which was –
2: the opposite.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. it was. It was it was um it was a magazine. I uh, I'm a first child. I want to please my father. It was the magazine my dad had and read. And it was a
2: hot place to work for a long time when I was very young in journalism. That yeah. was like if you got that, that yeah. you were made. Kind yeah. Of thing.
3: Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I mean it was uh it was a it was a joyful place for me to work even though mm-hmm. I had to deal with some incredible uh, personalities yes. who made life. Oh, I know uh, them all. You know, Yeah, yeah, very difficult at times. I was a writer there, and then I was an editor from 2006 to 2010. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, it made life really difficult for the New Republic. The New Republic was already a difficult place to work Mm -hmm. because we just struggled with the digital era. Did
2: did Peretz own it? Did Marty Peretz own it?
3: it, it, No, he was uh, was a part owner at that that moment. But the— Advent of blogs was an existential challenge to the magazine because— That's the, what it was. The magazine was—yeah, it, it, it was trafficked blanking. in opinion, mm-hmm. and then suddenly opinion became ubiquitous, and a lot of it was just as good as the stuff that it we was. were publishing. Yeah. Um, if, you know, in, in, in some cases better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it became a real challenge to the magazine. How do you adapt in that sort of world? And then the financial crisis hit, mm-hmm. and we we constantly had uh, beneficent owners who were doing it as kind of a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so it became harder and harder to find hobbyists to right. take on a magazine like that. And at a certain point, I just kind of got sick of it, and I and I left to go write books and mm-hmm. write some essays. And then in 2012, the magazine was about to be sold again, and it was looking for an owner. And along came this guy, Chris Hughes. Chris, I
2: know him well. Who
3: was kind of this mystical savior? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, he was so smart.
2: Yeah, he earnest.
3: Was so earnest, yeah. like so dedicated to what I felt like were the core Mm -hmm. values of the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I really liked him a lot. Got Mm -hmm. on just uh, famously well with him. Mm -hmm. And – you know, in fact, I always did, which mm-hmm. was kind of the surprise thing guy. to me. Yeah. Still, I
2: just had him on the podcast yeah. about UBI. He's all into the UBI. Yeah, issue.
3: yeah. So, uh, you know, a lovely guy. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like this incredible opportunity because, you know, we'd struggled Endless before. Money. We had all this money. We had an owner who was committed. We had an owner who got a lot of attention mm-hmm. because of his earnestness and because yeah. of kind of the— Idealism, running the, for office. the no, idealism that he es- he espoused, right. and it felt like we had this kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to remake journalism in a, in a dignified mm-hmm. sort of way, to mm-hmm. pr- to do a demonstration project right. that we could master all these things that no. had challenged us in the past, and
2: you guys, I remember yeah, meeting of him, and I was like, oh no no no, no he <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: no. can't help but metal. They all can't help but metal. Yeah. Like, well, in, in my and, head, Piero Omidyar was doing this too with uh, the Intercept, Intercept. Yeah. and I'll never forget I talked to him because. We talked to him about funding some stuff, and he was like, we should talk about it. I'm like, I don't want to fight with you. Like, I don't have an interest in fighting. But one of the things I was like, these people are going to drive—if you pick a desk— they're going to think you're meddling, and this is a group
3: of people. like right. You know, you,
2: you all have, like, personalities. Yeah. And so thanks for the money,
3: but go away. Yeah. Well, the, the thing I thought about Chris, and you, I think <laughs> you'll probably agree <laughs> after having talked to him a bunch, is that he's kind of a conflict-adverse guy. <laughs> he's not no. He's not like one of the no, founders. he means well. Mm-hmm. He means well. Yeah. And I'm a conflict-adverse person, and we had this kind of perfectly conflict-adverse <laughs> relationship until things exploded.
2: Yeah. yeah, so what what happened there from your perspective?
3: So what happened was, and I'll I'll talk I'll talk yeah. <laughs> like with you in a little bit uh, greater honesty than I've right. talked about. I mean, I think that his life was kind of in crisis mm-hmm. when his husband ran for Congress, right? And there was this front page story about them on the New York Times. Yes, I saw that. And I think it, it was just embarrassing to him. Mm-hmm. And then the New Republic was losing. Uh, we were spending a lot of money, mm-hmm. not. I think you know, in his fortune, he could easily absorb the right. losses, but nobody likes to absorb mm-hmm.
2: losses, no, even to losses, even if they're even
3: if they've kind of advertised themselves as an I- as an idealist. And right. so he really scrambled to kind of figure well, and also, I think he felt a degree of shame in mm-hmm. that he was always considered to be this guy who had lucked into his fortune. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's that's kind of yeah. one of the main theses yes. of his new work. He was there. Right. He was there. And right. so he wanted to prove At himself. Facebook. This is,
2: Chris got made his money from Facebook. From, he wanted to prove himself on terms
3: that, right. that Zuckerberg and mm-hmm. uh, the other early Facebook people would respect. And also he acknowledged that he hated selling ads, which mm-hmm. was the thing that he had shouldered a lot of – uh, when when he became when he appointed himself publisher mm-hmm. of the magazine, and uh, so he began shopping for a CEO, right. and there were all sorts of different ways that we could go with that. And right. he was this is one of the things that was surprising to me was that he was so open mm-hmm. with me about the process of selecting a CEO. So mm-hmm. I had always reported to an owner before, and so there was going to be a new layer. Yeah. And so he was very he gracious you to
2: be part of it. And and, and it so makes
3: sense. I liked most of the people that we had, we'd interviewed mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh except and for he, the one that, that he, he wanted picked. to pick. Yeah. And that guy whose actual whose name was guy, mm-hmm. ironic. Um Mr. Digital. Yeah, and he'd come from Yahoo. Mhm. Oh, I
2: know guy.
3: Yeah, and I didn't have anything against his resume or uh, 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 but it was clear to me from the start what that he was a bad fit. He mm. was it was a bad fit, but mm. also that he just didn't want to deal with me. Right. And so in the process where Chris had opened up this interview process, I was having coffee and talking on the phone with all the candidates. And he was the one who was kind of seemed to be avoiding me. Mm -hmm. And so I took that to be a bad sign. And I let Chris know that he was the one that I didn't like. And And of course he was the one that he picked. Right. And then it was almost inevitable that things would go bad from there. There was this, my first, it took me two weeks to get a meeting with him. Mm -hmm. And when I did, I went into his office and um, on a whiteboard, he just started to diagram the ways in which he wanted to change the editorial mm-hmm. process of the magazine, and and how and and all of these shifts, yeah. and it was being imposed. And then we had this editorial meeting where he unveiled himself to the staff, and it was like he'd studied every single cliche of being a tech CEO yes. and wanted to come in and kind of swagger. Yeah, and there was just no effort. Shareable to, nuggets. Yeah, snackable.
2: Snackable nuggets. Snackable
3: Scalable. content. Yes, yeah. Scalable. Well, and also just kind of the, the, the like, it's a magazine that had just celebrated its 100-year mm-hmm. birthday. Yeah, and
2: you guys are the worst ones to pull that stuff on. Like, oh, no. I'd like, yeah. have to say, if I had to pick a group of people, I wouldn't pull that on. It would be that group. And by the way, you're not easy yourselves. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. Resistant to change. Totally. Utterly resistant to change. Totally. I talked to a bunch of, I was like, come on. Like, some of the stuff you can start doing. Like,
3: Well, I mean... To be fair, mm-hmm. I felt like over time I, I was because I'm a I'm a I'm a grown up. Mm-hmm. I understand that mm-hmm. the world you know things yeah. change yeah. that you have to swallow things that you don't want to do. Some of it is it is easy,
2: mm-hmm.
3: but there was this way in which. Oh no,
2: he was wrong.
3: No, no, but there was also this way. I mean, to, to, to in their defense, mm-hmm. there is this way in which kind of subconsciously you you know even if you know something is easy and it's helpful. You don't want to do it because it's not what you signed up for.
2: Right, exactly. No, but but I think in a lot of ways it's – when these things, these tech journalist things happen, all that matters is the journalism for one. That's number one. And number two, you're not going to make a lot of money here, everybody. Like that's the – other. like it's – sorry, you're going to make – you can make good money. You'll be famous. Like I think the way Bezos has done it is perfect. Like it's not going to make a lot of money, but it's good. He's Mm -hmm. helping it. It's gotten better. Like, those are the the smaller things, and that's what I hope the rest of these people will realize. But the journalism matters above all, and that's it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's once you come in with a plan to alter the core Mm -hmm. and then you're starting to mess with the mission of the organization, you're essentially destroying the underlying value. Yeah. Of the enterprise.
2: Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with asking people to tweet and do things like get in that. And that, people are, journalists are still resistant. I'm like, get out of the way if you don't want to. I don't disagree
3: with that, but there was this way in which, uh, so one of the faults of the New Republic Mm -hmm. in its modern incarnation was that it was contrarian to the core. Mm -hmm. And then you were asking us to kind of do the thing that was trending and the thing that everybody else was doing. And that just felt. Ad, right, because you signed up to be original, right? And then they were like, "Well, just take a li- goddamn clip from the Daily Show and write uh, a tested headline for it." Mm-hmm. And, and that's so easy to do, right? right. We and should, probably
2: the right thing. We
3: probably should have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. But there was this way in which when you ask people to do that, they just resent it so <laughs> Trust, much. You're strange. like, you're paying. But you're also, it's like at the New Republic, the, you know.
2: You're paying them enough to. Yeah, it's
3: like if, 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 if you're asking. It, that's work that ends up getting passed down to a kid. Right. And you're like, we're paying you $30,000 a year of thirty five thousand dollars a year, yeah. and you came in with this expectation of writing
2: the great essay. Yeah,
3: and then you're gonna have to like just cut and paste yeah. links from yeah. shows all day yeah. long. Now you work for the BuzzFeed else.
2: Farm, yeah. Yeah. like yeah. that kind of thing. Kind yeah. of. So you you were there, and then you left. You left quite famously,
3: right? So it was um, I resigned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a resignation where I knew I was gonna get fired. So. Right.
2: It was very righteous. I liked it. I like it oh, was over you. the meddling.
3: Yeah. Well, what happened was. I had at a certain point, I was just like, I'm, I'm done. Life's too I sure. was actually, I was gonna quit. I was gonna quit, and I was gonna offer them terms of mm-hmm. quitting, where I was just like, look, I'm not your guy to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just, you know, you Bygones. can, you can, you can just move on with your thing. I'll move on with my thing. Mm-hmm. You know, best of luck to us all. Mm-hmm. And then I saw, I knew that there, I, I, I'd got because I'm a reporter. Right. Like I heard that uh, there was some other guy who had been an editor at Gawker. Mm-hmm who was talking to people about jobs and mm-hmm. he was saying that he was going to be the next editor of the New Republic. Mm-hmm. And so I mean at that point it's almost a cost free right. resignation it's yeah. not it's not, it's, yeah. it's not as righteous as you want. The, no. the other people who followed me at the door were doing it for righteous reasons. Yes. And yes. so a bunch of the staff quit because they did not it, it's just, like, it, it, in terms of signaling— It was
2: fantastic. It was yeah. such a good, like, media moment. Well,
3: it was. And it was like an adolescent fantasy <laughs> where you're like, I <laughs> quit. Living. And then, you know, a bunch of other people quit, too. But yeah. it was—it's also—it's a scary thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, in journalism, we're kind of berated by our owners and, and, Not and by for the media. Me. I love quitting. No, but, but the media is constantly telling yeah. you that, like, there are no journalism jobs, right? That yeah, if I you, love quitting.
2: It's my yeah. favorite thing. It is it's pretty— my favorite weapon. It's my— I'm leaving now. <laughs> it's great. It's, it frees you when you don't worry about it. It is true. You know?
3: That is so true. You
2: take back the power. It's really great. You have to be talented. That's the thing. You have to be so you have other options, but it's pretty powerful to start doing that because now it's easier because uh, you can make your own things. If you're entrepreneurial, it's good for you. If you're not, it's bad for you. So you went on to do the Atlantic, so you left there, and then Where who owns the, who owns the, new, who owns the new Republic now?
3: A guy from Oregon mm-hmm. um, who uh, called Win McCormick, mm-hmm. who I think also owns the Baffler.
2: Okay, so they're more comfortable in that setting. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, and it's it's been reinvented. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, for my own psychic piece, I didn't look at it for a long time. But actually, as I was m- on my way up here, there was Ezra Klein's copy was sitting in the mailbox, <laughs> and so I picked it up. I was like, I haven't <laughs> I haven't seen this thing in so long. Of course, let me just,
2: Ezra gets a copy.
3: Let me let me just yes. take a look at it, and it was actually. Um, I actually liked what I saw. It Good. surprised me. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot further to the left mm-hmm. than we were. It should be. Back yeah. then. But, I mean, that's where the, yeah. That's where the
2: zeitgeist is going. So you moved to the Atlantic and then wrote this book. You've been working, or did you write the book first? I wrote the
3: book first. first. I mean, so no.
2: what prompted you, this experience with Chris?
3: It's actually, so, uh, yes, it did. But, yeah, we but so really you got I a was, little
2: glimpse into my world. <laughs> 20, and he's one of the nicer ones, I'll tell you that.
3: So I, um, I'd actually begun to think about this much before because— I had been radicalized by Amazon's conflict with Hachette mm-hmm. over ebook pricing, right. and so I, I saw this, and I was a, its all self-interested, right? I was a writer with—I had written a book with Hachette, and I just saw what Amazon was doing. And at first, I didn't really care that much because you know mm-hmm. it's like a big publishing oligopoly against right, right. Uh, an, an ebook monopoly and. I like – you know, I get a lot of stuff from Mm -hmm. Amazon and I've never been anti – I wasn't especially anti-Amazon before that. But then I saw the way in which they were abusing their market power, stripping the buy buttons off of hashtag books, redirecting people on searches. And so it it got me thinking and it got me active and – yeah.
2: So we're going to talk about that and the book itself, because I think it was one of the first times I, I've been talking about this for about 18 months too, but this issue around these issues, the existential threat of big tech, and they're also the lack of responsibility. We're here with Frank Four. He's the author of a book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. And it's now out in paper book, but it's a, it's a big issue now, and it's sort of come to the fore.
0: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
2: We're here with Frank Four. He wrote a book called World Without Mind. It's about the threat that big tech brings to us. And you said you started it because you had had this experience with Chris Hughes. Like, you'd gotten a little taste of the internet people. And then... Amazon was attacking Hachette.
3: Right. And so um, I was active. I have got active with the Authors Guild, mm-hmm. and I went in to right. meet with the FTC and the Justice Department to try to get them to do something. And one other thing is, is that my dad was an anti—is uh, an antitrust lawyer mm-hmm. who— it was like Oh, his, even better. It's like his it's passion. His, yeah. It's his passion. It's like mm-hmm. he was—he—another <laughs> weird thing. So right now, we're in a building on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. It was a building—my grandfather had a jewelry store for a long time a in the brooks Juba? no in the brooks brothers okay. space right. and okay. so when he was di- my dad was trained as an antitrust lawyer and when my grandfather was passing away he he asked my dad to take over the jewelry store and mm-hmm. so my dad was kind of waylaid a little bit uh, from his passion for antitrust mm-hmm. but he was also he he testified against robert bork as a small businessman mm-hmm. and um it was something that he just always remained really passionate mm-hmm. about and then when the recession of the early 90s kind of wiped out a lot of retail my dad was kind of stuck trying to figure out what to do and he's like you know screw it my passion is antitrust I'm going to start uh, an advocacy group slash think tank Your to- passion was anti. just once I, I know okay alright
2: whatever I know right.
3: everybody has you yeah. know, is moved by their own thing okay. and can you believe it's like <laughs> antitrust yes <laughs> yeah.
2: that will be my interest yeah
3: yeah um, and so it was like I grew up yeah. hearing about the, the mm-hmm. perils of Monopoly. It was something that I didn't really take to until I could start to see it mm-hmm. um, with the tech companies. And so I was started to think about it almost from an economic framework first and expanded out. Just that we, there's this problem of dependence. Mm-hmm. When you become dependent on a platform, right. the platform starts to have all this power over you. And so writers are incredible narcissists. Mm-hmm. We like to think that we're at the center of the narrative. Right. But actually in a way we were because Amazon first started with big, the world's biggest bookstore. It was a bookstore, right? Mm-hmm. And so and, and they amassed this incredible monopoly in ebooks, an indisputable monopoly where mm-hmm. you know 70% of all ebooks are sold through Kindle. And so they could set the terms. And they were setting the terms in a really bullying sort of way with no concern to the underlying health of the industry. And mm-hmm. they were disrupting the industry in order to consolidate even greater power. Right. And so th- they wanted everything published directly through Amazon. Right. Now, that didn't work, which is really interesting that um ebook sales have plateaued. Right.
2: And a- Apple came in and Apple others. came in,
3: but also the idea of Kindle singles and, mm-hmm. and that they were starting a publishing house where they would use their Remember? platform to advantage themselves. That didn't work. And I think publishers, book publishers as opposed to media, have actually made a lot of important decisions that in retrospect were virtuous, healthy decisions, where they defended the underlying economic value of their product. And they they did take a stand against. The platform, they didn't kind of meekly accede to. They're Insta still under articles. the sway of
2: Amazon. Though. Still, oh, of
3: course, yeah. but they but they also protected their their business.
2: Right, they protected for now, for now, for today, because <laughs> Amazon's selling microwaves and furniture now. Just, yeah. they'll, they'll march into every every sector that they can march into.
3: Of course, but and, of- and, but isn't that uh, what, yes. uh, what I'm getting at? Is is that that like what happened with publishers is going to happen to the rest of the economy. It is happening to the rest of the economy. Yes, where, yes. You know, if you're a peach producer for Whole Foods like in, in rural Pennsylvania, you're going to start getting squeezed by Amazon at a certain point.
2: Right, absolutely. So when you're saying world without mind, so you, you had these two experiences, one with at the in the New Republic, one uh, with Hachette and Amazon. Why world without mine? So you decide you're going to write a book about this very early on. I mean, I think most people were in the tech is fantastic zone. Yeah. Um, uh, when you were writing this.
3: Yeah. So it definitely felt like a quixotic adventure right. at first. Um, so I was I was thinking about a couple things. One is I also like I wasn't as articulate and precise as somebody like Tristan Harris mm-hmm. in terms of talking about the contem- about attention. The addiction, right? Yeah to attention. attention but yeah. I could see that these devices were the enemy of contemplation, mm-hmm. and that obviously I wasn't the first one to to make this point. Right. Lots of people were making this point that that the attention that they were constructing an attention economy. Yes, but that to the me slot
2: machine of attention. Is yeah. what I call it.
3: And and that that to me was one crucial piece of it, mm-hmm. which was that they were they were actually preventing us from thinking.
2: Well, they're addictive, and they were underscoring their addiction by creating the way the way they were doing it.
3: But but when your when your thought processes are constantly being manipulated by invisible forces, which is what what happens, where mm-hmm. you know Facebook and Google are constantly organizing things in ways in which mm-hmm. we're not really cognizant, and we're not even taught to be cognizant, and right. most people aren't, and 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 done in a way in which they're leveraging. Our data. I mean, our data is this cartography of the inside of our psyche. Mm-hmm. And they know our weaknesses and they know the things that give us pleasure and the things that cause us anxiety and anger. And they use that information in order to keep us addicted. Mm-hmm. And so that makes the companies the in- enemy of independent thought.
2: Right. So you have that, the addiction part, you have the market power over advertising, over all kinds of behavior, over. Right. Retail over how people look at things. So, when you're saying world without mind, is that we don't have a mind anymore? That's essentially it, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I was getting at a couple things. So, one was the, the addiction piece of it, one was the ways in which I saw that they were devastating journalism and culture industries, you know, not universally Music, because. entertainment. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we've seen. Right. In television, uh, you know, something of a renaissance over the course of the last— In
2: part because of these companies. In part because that.
3: of these companies, no doubt. But you could also see in a lot of the other traditional culture industries that it was—that uh, their values were perniciously infiltrating the industry. So in journalism, what we, we could see the ways in which—as journalism has grown increasingly dependent on Facebook and Google mm-hmm. uh, for, for traffic and therefore for revenue, uh, the ways in which— When their algorithms change, when they construct these systems, you have no choice but to adhere to their standards and values as you go about constructing things. And so that's and
2: they are ill-equipped to do that. Yes. I just was having a discussion about that. You know, in terms of when someone was asking me about Mark Zuckerberg, and I said he's ill-equipped to handle these issues. That's that's the worst problem. It's right. not that he has the power and not the ability.
3: Well, it's also when you interviewed him, mm-hmm. and oh, he, yeah. and he he sunk himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could just see the wheels turning in his head slowly, and he just didn't understand the way that it. It seemed like he didn't even understand the way his own platform worked.
2: I think he's ill-equipped to handle the challenges which are massive. In front of him, and he has all the power.
3: So this, there's a broader cultural mm-hmm. problem, which is that you have these companies that have been—that were started by engineers, and mm-hmm. engineers ascend to the mm-hmm. highest ranks of those companies. That's and right. if you're trained as an engineer, you're trained in a very narrow way of thinking. You're trained right. to make a system work mm-hmm. um, and, and work on its own terms. you're trained
2: not to look at the problems. You're trained to look at only solutions.
3: Yes, Exactly. But you've also—and you're trained to—you know, when you construct the system, you think of human beings as a pile of data.
2: Mm, Right, right.
3: Not as a human being. You can't think of them in all their full dimensions and—
2: Or you can't reflect on— again we reflect on what happened like it's sort of like there's the challenger accident and going you know we're not going to focus on the o-rings let's just build a better rocket that's how they answer and you're like what about the o-rings <laughs> like how did that happen how did that like that's a really interesting problem and it resulted in tragedy so
3: but let's, if you if you don't if you don't diagnose the problem with the o-rings course. you're you're you're, you're no, skipping something what, fundamental and understanding exactly, the way that which
2: is why in that interview when i kept saying how do you feel about this and he's like, I'd like to get to the solutions. I'm like, I'd like to get to the problem. Like, I'd yeah. like to get to how you got to the problem. Yeah. And and I kept saying, how do you – that's why I was kept asking four or five times, how do you feel about your invention being
3: misused this way? And this is the thing that annoys me mm-hmm. in these conversations because <laughs> I've I've tried to engage with the tech companies mm-hmm. at various moments. And they can understand, okay, we have a fake news problem. Okay, we, we need to uh, – b- but they don't – The bot uh, problem. But though. they never talk about – Manipulation, which mm-hmm. is the core of the problem, that that the problem is that they've created these platforms that. Are based on this manipulate. idea that they're going to be able to manipulate us to engage us for as long as possible, mm-hmm. and that other people are going to come into the outside from the outside right. and take advantage of that right. because that's the system that they created. Well,
2: that's I keep saying that it's exactly they didn't hack; it was built this way. Exactly, exacting. You know, remember Jessica Rabbit? I, I, you can't blame me. I was, I was drawn this way. Yeah. This is the way I was drawn. So, so there's a point you were trying to get through when you were talking about it. Was this that we are? facing a threat from these companies, which was in—you were early. You were—I mean, I've always been banging at them. But in terms of the popular company, why has it taken so long for that—why did it take so long? And then in our next section, I'd like you to talk about where it goes because now everyone's fully aware of these problems.
3: Look— The United States is not, uh, you know, we we like when we build a competitive sector that Mm -hmm. becomes a source of national pride. Mm -hmm. Um, It, you when when um, you have a new when you had you had a new elite emerging, and it's exciting to have a new elite emerging. And they're very wealthy. They're very wealthy. They uh, they defied a lot of our stereotypes about what. Captains of Industry should look like and well,
2: hoodies yeah the the, the, and- the
3: cult of youth is such a powerful American thing mm-hmm. so you have you have uh, these people appear on the scene and we you know and at first I mean I, I was I can't say that I was skeptical of these people right from the start what mm-hmm. they did seemed exciting and novel and it takes a while for us to realize exactly what they've done that's so terrible or what the threats are that's posed by them. And media certainly was complicit in concocting a very, very glossy perception of this cohort.
2: Mm -hmm. And in terms of how exciting they were, how interesting, how quirky, how strange— yeah. Aren't they refreshing?
3: Yes. Th- th- that, Not your
2: father's old mobile. That,
3: and also the products that they were creating defied were a lot of our templates for right. uh, you know thinking about some of these problems. So if you're, you're talking about Monopoly, well, they give away their products for free. And so they defy a lot of the problems that we associate with Monopoly, which mm-hmm. are all about jacking up prices. Mm-hmm. Or media was in no position to decry them because they'd made a devil's bargain with them Many years earlier. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me about the backlash is how much of it seems based on kind of pent up emotions, that there's this psychodrama that journalism's had where it's known a lot of what's wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like the New York Times, mm-hmm. where it was like every day the New York Times was hammering these companies, it, it was like th- it was like this pent-up rage uh-huh. that they were suddenly expressing that they hadn't been allowed to talk about or feel or express right. for many years. And so it came out in this kind of everyday hammering.
2: Yeah. All right. We'll talk about that and more when we get back with Frank Four. He's the author of World Without Mind. He's also a writer for The Atlantic. And we'll talk about where it's going.
4: Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's profiverrf F-I-V-E-R-R, dot and use code VOX.
2: We're here with Frank Four. He's the author of World Without Mind. It's come out in paperback, but you wrote it about a year ago. We were talking yeah. about how it went from that. What tipped it from your perspective? Because it was going along like, look at these cool covers of Fortune. Aren't these interesting? Yeah. Rulers of the world, that kind of stuff. Shifted really quickly.
3: Well, clearly the proximate trigger was the election of Donald Trump. Right. And on the surface, the reasons for what the backlash were obvious. The Cambridge Analytica scandal, Russian interference more generally— But I think it was also the sense that that's not even expressed that much because it sounds elitist, mm-hmm. and as you know from my book, I'm not afraid mm-hmm. to sound elitist. No, go right <laughs> ahead. i
2: <I'm> frank. You're elite. <laughs> 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 I'm
3: too. Um, it's it's that Facebook produced this garbage ecosystem for news and information, mm-hmm. and if you give citizens garbage information, they're going to make garbage decisions. Mm-hmm. And so it's You know, we don't. We you. This is the kind of intangible thing that you can. I, I lay blame at Facebook on that. I can't. Prove explicitly, but when so many people are influenced by what they read on Facebook, Mm -hmm. they deserve blame for creating the environment that created Donald Trump. Because it was not an it's not an environment of reliable information. It was it was it was an environment filled with uh, filter bubbles that made us uh, that kind of weakened our intellectual defenses. It made us really vulnerable to demagoguery.
2: Right, and Twitter.
3: And same, Twitter, yeah. Same
2: thing, just sort of the handmaiden to Facebook kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit less hard on Twitter just because its market share is smaller and— um, oh, its influence is
2: massive. Its
3: influence is clearly massive. Right. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's kind of—its it's, influence is on— elites as much as
2: right as anyone else but yeah. hey, look donald trump has
3: used the person, oh no I, it's usually. not a, it's not a virtuous it's not a virtuous environment
2: right and so when you when you're talking about this when we don't have these what are your solutions going for because i think the backlash is really continuing yeah. it hasn't stopped
3: so i think that we see two types of solutions coming mm-hmm. down the pike
2: and actually can i ask one I yeah. one thing it's also not all of tech like, can you really blame certain companies for this, others
3: that are not? No, necessary? I mean, I, I tried. So I tried to focus mostly on the GAFA companies, mm-hmm. Google, Amazon, Facebook, mm-hmm. and Apple, because they have the size. And I think that they're crowding out a lot of innovation and in yes, the I rest of tech. And so that's, it's a hard position to take where I do have certain Luddite tendencies. Mm-hmm. But I uh, I also think that tech is is an incredible thing that you know google is one of the great achievements of human engineering mm-hmm. the iphone is a, a pretty spectacular yes uh, incarnation of of cr- human creativity. creativity yeah so two things that are coming down the pike one is the possibility of regulation and so We've seen it already happening. Right. So sex trafficking is the first yes, place. Yes, around and then,
2: Section 230.
3: Yeah. And then we say, okay, you need to take responsibility for foreign um, influence that's a, – a, a, a foreign political influence on your sites. And everybody applauds these things because who could possibly object? And then um, there's pressure for them, uh, a governmental pressure, to regulate other speeches, to curb bullying, mm-hmm. to curb bots – and it just doesn't stop potentially. I think that there's a real danger. And, you know, you look at China that if we regulate these platforms in the wrong sort of way, I'm sympathetic to their arguments right. that regulation could be a way to for them to squash um, competitors. That mm-hmm. we saw this with AT&T, right? That AT&T cut a deal with the government where they said, all right, what, the function we perform is a utility function. You're going to keep our monopoly and we're going to do whatever the hell you say. And that puts us down the road to China, right? And so that's why I, you know, I'm not anti-regulation. I think that we need to have some sort of form of data protection, mm-hmm. and maybe there are other softer steps that we could take that that so would be important. So think about those.
2: What would those be? So a bill of rights or what?
3: Yeah. So I think that there, you know, I'm I'm interested in some of the fiduciary models that are being kicked around. I'm so explain I, that for people. So when you're dealing with – when you're trafficking in data, when you're trafficking in news and information, all these public goods, Mm -hmm. historically, the government says, okay, you can traffic in those public goods, but it also comes with responsibilities. And so – with the environment, um, you know, there are clear rules that we put yeah. on that say you can't degrade this public thing in certain ways.
2: If you're a cigarette manufacturer or a chemical manufacturer. Yeah, if
3: you're a factory, if you're— Right. Right. And we did the same thing with uh, with the telecom companies as well, with— uh, telecom companies with the n- news networks mm-hmm. where they yeah. had fairness doctrines. Fairness doctrines. And yeah. we also limited the ability to to own to, to, to own, own too much. Man. Yeah. Right. So I think that there are important analogs that we could consider there. That we
2: consider- do you think that's going to happen?
3: I do. I think that there are changes within the Democratic Party right now that make yes. that much oh, more yeah. likely to happen. I just did an interview with Mark Warner that hasn't been published mm-hmm. yeah. yet. Because we did have pub- him at
2: Code this year. He,
3: p- he published this white paper yep. that I think is really – sweeping in its criticisms of big oh, tech. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have the silver bullet solution. It's kind you of know, been he's all quite of the, into, I
2: think he's focused a lot on cybersecurity and things like that, but yes, 100%.
3: But he's now talking about privacy yes, and he is. he's talking a lot about uh, news. Mhm.
2: Yeah, because I mean, what what's really interesting, I mean, is because someone from Facebook the other day was saying, "Well, you know, they're only mad at us because we stopped um, pushing politicians in the press." on Facebook and our focus on, like, family and community and stuff like that. I go, oh, I don't think that's—I think that's—yeah, the yeah, they're real mad about that. Like, I don't think that's what they're real mad about. I think they're mad about a range of other things. Right. And you're right. The Democratic Party, which was the well, friend was, to tech, is now going to turn on it.
3: It was—you interviewed Cory Booker, right? That yes, was the famous did, and interview and did where, where Mark, he— did. And, and so when, when Booker uh, talked about regulation in your interview— mm-hmm. I think I, I was I had lunch with somebody from Google mm-hmm. soon after, and they said, "Well, that's the marker that's been laid down. That he is he's kind of the most centrist politician. Uh, yep. That he's somebody who we thought was an ally." And he's somebody who's now saying that he's considering taking pretty radical action Mm -hmm. against us. Well, then everybody else in the Democratic Party is going to be further to the left than him.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what solutions, when you think about their influence now, I I mean, obviously everyone can be stopped on some level. Every big company has been brought down ultimately over time, whether it's U.S. Steel or whatever. These things have these things, but they do incredible damage along the way. Do you consider tech damaging now?
3: Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think that— the The last election is probably as Mm -hmm. as good evidence as we could look at it. The ways in which it's been it's it's damaging, and I think that the questions are so because tech is everything, Mm -hmm. right? It's almost silly at a certain level to talk about tech anymore because tech is everything. It's the oxygen. Yeah, it is the oxygen. And so when we talk about Amazon, we're talking about the future of the economy. We're talking about the future of jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about Facebook and Google, we're talking about companies that have just – that are so much more than the front-facing obvious part of their platforms. And mm-hmm. with Alexa in Google Home, they're implanting themselves ever deeper into – our lives, and I think anybody who has, you know, who people always ask, can you imagine life without Google? And I'm 44 years old, and I, you know, so of course I can mm-hmm. imagine life without Google. And you can see the ways in which um, the the rise of tech has transformed us as yeah, individuals. I
2: found my maps the other day. I threw them <laughs> out. I was like, oh look, I used to use these.
3: Yeah, and you <laughs> know, they're well
2: worn. They yeah, will-
3: but good riddance to your yeah, maps, right? Like I'm totally happy yeah, to be yeah. done with 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 maps. Right. right. But I'm I'm pissed. At and, like, I'm unhappy with myself and with the platforms uh, that it makes it harder and harder for me to have a conversation with people I love where mm-hmm. I'm fully Engaged. present.
2: Right, 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 absolutely. And one of the things that's interesting is if you think about a lot, like, it, it ranges from everything, shopping, mapping, every everything you do. And so, so where do you imagine it's going now? You you wrote about this first more than a year ago, and then the paperback said, where do you imagine What do you imagine happening
3: next? So you you have these debates happening within the Democratic Party that Mm -hmm. seem kind of esoteric. Like, what's the difference between a socialist and a liberal Mm -hmm. now? And they're kind of—it's pretty vacuous. Like, I think socialism just means excitement for new ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think it necessarily means nationalizing. But— I do think that there are these – so I'm saying there's these two two different approaches. One is that takes us kind of away from capitalism mm-hmm. that maybe treats these companies more and more like utilities and that there's even some I – I can imagine us even contemplating nationalizing Google,
1: mm-hmm. which
3: I don't think would be a good idea. Yeah. But then there's this other tradition, which is the anti-monopoly tradition, which – At her dinner party, we talked about Elizabeth Warren, and Mm -hmm. I said I liked Elizabeth Warren, and I think I got death stares from all of the establishment figures at the party. They didn't like it. I can tell
2: you, tech doesn't like her either. But
3: but she is thinking about the future of capitalism in a way that I think mm -hmm. tech should like because – Follow, you're, okay, you're, I'm going to follow you because you,
2: she literally was the most hated speaker we ever well, had of, at our of co- course, conference, and because, I, I thought it was ridiculous that she was incredibly articulate and intelligent about these issues.
3: Because what she's talking about is recreating a competitive economy, mm-hmm. where uh, you know if you define concentration as the biggest problem, that what what's what's so bad about Facebook? Well, Facebook wouldn't be bad if it wasn't so dominant, mm-hmm. and so if you had if you had a smaller Facebook. Well, that that's something I think we could all
2: well. I think live they with. they if, think of themselves as smaller. You know that these people, these the Googles, they think of themselves as like scrappy.
3: Yeah. Well, you know,
2: I'm like you got just got in a private plane and flew to like yeah. to Kilimanjaro to hike. Like you're right. not. scrappy.
3: Well, you have right. You have two billion global users. Nice Yeah. Like
2: you know what I mean. But it's astonishing when you talk to them. Cause they they feel like I'm just a regular person. I'm like, no, you're not. What are you talking about? Like, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, this is also part of the problem, which is right. that this is separate from the solutions. But when you accumulate great power, mm-hmm. you also accumulate great responsibilities. Right. I and say that all the yeah. time. When I was listening to Zuckerberg, when I listened to him, when I listened to him on your podcast, it seemed like he was so uncomfortable with he his— He wants to push it away. With the, the idea that he would have any sort of responsibility.
2: Well, he's also uncomfortable with— the power, but he's not giving it up. Like, it's really fascinating. Like, he's uncomfortable. He wants to push away the power. Oh, it's the community. I'm like, but you control it. But it's the community. I'm like, well, why do you have all the stock that controls the entire board?
1: Right. Every decision is is, yours. So
2: where
3: we're headed is we're going to have a conversation about power. Right. This is the conversation we should be having, that Mm -hmm. they have too much power. Our politics and our policy should be shaped around But Kirby. do we
2: have the right policy in place anymore? Because we're thinking no. we're living in an at t microsoft world like that. We can grab them for a monopoly. Could, I, think, I not, think they're not clearly, like going back to your dad, the whole concept, and this has been written about quite a lot recently, the whole concept of what antitrust is has to change drastically.
3: Yeah. Well, or it has to just revert back to what it was before the 1960s when Robert Bork bastardized mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. Um, that – Instead of just focusing, you know, the standard right now is consumer welfare, mm-hmm. which means that if they don't jack up prices, if they don't do anything— And they to deliver actually
2: beautifully. Hurt,
3: yeah, then there's nothing we can do about mm-hmm. these companies. And that was my frustration when I went and talked to the, uh, the Justice Department about Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, they're actually hurting—they're hurting consumers over the long run by hurting producers. Mm-hmm. And they're behaving in a bullying sort of way, maybe not to consumers, but to— Producers, like why in God's name can't you see the harm? Mm-hmm. And they just couldn't see it because it was so uh, it was so outside of the current paradigm under which they're operating. I don't think it's that hard to change the paradigm here. It just takes it takes some leadership. Do you leadership. think that's going to happen? I do. I think that we're we're moving in that direction. I think it's interesting when you look at what the Europeans have done. Yes. So let's set aside and by the, way, the Marguerite
2: Vestager's in town. Yeah. Week, yeah.
3: So you set aside the GDPR and mm-hmm. you look at what she's done
2: with Amazon just recently.
3: With yeah and, it, and with Google and Facebook all. Of right. It. You stare at it really hard. Mm-hmm. You can start to see the ways in which This is the EU
2: commissioner just for people who don't know. Start to s-
3: see the ways in which she's thinking about how do I how do I lessen their power? How do I take their advertising business and open it up to third parties? Mm-hmm. Which is in a way a form of breaking up the company. It's mm-hmm. not smashing it into a million bits and pieces, but it's taking critical parts of the company and finding ways to make it uh, more competitive, more welcoming to an ecosystem that supports uh, startups, and startups and it's not just dominated by the mm-hmm. platform itself. Mm-hmm. And so you, you you look at Amazon. I think there's this interesting principle that Amazon – operates like this bazaar it's this it's this marketplace yet it's also a competitor in the marketplace and i think we need to find ways to separate those two functions to say if you're going to own the bazaar you can't also actively participate in it Mm -hmm. this is it's a google yelp case right
2: right exactly which has gone on and on and on and what's interesting is the republicans are attacking tech on all the wrong reasons than they used to like biased. It's just not, that's not, I'm always like, no, over here. Yeah, <laughs> there, but there, the Crime there, is over here. But there, I, it's
3: like there. there is this core nugget of insight. You know, that it's something's like, wrong. That something's wrong, that these algorithms are black box, and right. so, you know, that if you're going to say that you're not biased, why should I believe you? Yes, that is you're, true. And you're, you're manipulating things in all sorts of invisible sorts of ways. Right. So how do I know you're not manipulating them against me? And so they're just super imposing. Um, I get
2: that. Yeah. I just am sitting there like, no, no, don't it's not what they're doing. They're over here doing yeah, really yeah, bad things yeah. to you that you don't even see. But I think it's it's the obsession with that with Trump unbiased and things like that. Well, that's just when like he's the their best friend. I'm like this, yeah. these. Hey, you know, attack them all you want, but give send them a giant you know embossed thank you note for what they did for you, yeah. which is really interesting yeah. on so many levels. Well, all he right.
3: changed tax policy. In, yes. To, well, they
2: like that. Yeah, they like level, the repatriated sort of flag, yeah. money and everything Those else. There's the
3: bouquet of flowers. Um,
2: so, if Democrats get in the House, you think this is.
3: This isn't going to happen quickly. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen quickly. And so with the Zuckerberg hearings, mm-hmm. everybody walked away with this great sense of disappointment, like why didn't the world change the next way? Right. Day. The next day, because that's just not what happens right. in our political system. Right. Especially when it's dysfunctional and broken. Mm-hmm. And it takes it takes time for things to turn into change. And the backlash against these companies has come really quickly. I think mm-hmm. much more quickly than I had expected it would. And so, you know, that needs to simmer for a little bit. And you need political leaders to emerge to kind of take those sentiments and to corral them towards policy ends that actually might do something.
2: And so what do you imagine it be that being?
3: So I don't think that this is going to be – I don't think tech is going to be a big campaign issue in mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. I think monopoly is going to become a big uh, issue in 2020 because we have – Concentration in all these industries and it's having an effect on the labor market. It has an effect on health care. It's kind of crazy. uh, if you if you have a kid who has a nut allergy that there's only one maker, you know, there's been EpiPen's had this unchallenged monopoly and we've just fallen asleep. And so that becomes Yeah, yeah, that just becomes an issue. It becomes a new framework. But I think that democratic elites are starting to kind of universally almost Think about the perils of big tech. And so once they come into power on this issue of monopoly, they then redirect it towards these companies. And you look at the people who would populate the FTC or mm-hmm. the, the other regulatory agencies that would deal with big tech, they're thinking about this stuff yeah, now. Yeah,
2: finally. And it's before, even, even
3: the most conventional center left, neoliberal, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. democratic policy wonks. I think have arrived at the place where they can see that something big needs to be done against these companies.
2: You think Trump will move against them in any way besides his crazy tweets?
3: I wouldn't be – so I, I got invited to speak at the Justice Department mm-hmm. uh, by Macon Del Rahim Yeah, um, and I just had him
2: on the podcast.
3: He's yeah. He's hugely intelligent. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. Fascinating. And um, he endorsed my book to his division. And it's a, this strange thing. Like you're walking into the session, Jeff Sessions – Justice Department, and Mm -hmm. I'm kind of delivering my, whatever, my populist indictment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of these companies, and they're nodding their their heads, and you think, well, this could go really badly in dangerous directions, Mm -hmm. but so much of our world is about pressure. Mm -hmm. It's about, so what was with Microsoft, Microsoft wasn't broken into a million pieces, Mm -hmm. but it felt pressure, and that pressure constrained them. And so, when it came to using their power in a bullying sort of way, they thought two and three times about it, and to the detriment of the company, but also to the good of the internet. Yeah. I, mean, I think Google would have been strangled by Microsoft. Uh, I don't know if you agree yes. with that. Yeah,
2: I do. Yeah, I, well, maybe not. Either you know, t- time comes for people, but in this case, they do have these advantages that they don't even realize they have. You know, they they do realize they have them. I don't know. I, I, everyone says they're more reflective. I think—I know it sounds crazy, but what just happened with Instagram and Facebook tells me no. Yeah. Like they have learned—they—to have that happen there, it's a big sign that, that, that they're becoming um, more inflexible.
3: Well, that's actually part of the problem, which is that in the end, you can apply pressure on them, but you can't count on them to regulate themselves. No. And I—you know, there was a moment—it took me so long to quit Facebook. hmm and it's not even that I liked using it that much, but I I wrote a book. Mm-hmm. I knew everything that was wrong with Facebook, but I just kept it. And then there was that – there's kind of this spurt of things that Zuckerberg did around the hearings. And just <laughs> like listening to him talk after everything, I thought you're still being so evasive. Mm-hmm. You're still dissembling about the core things that your business does. Everything I think that you're doing wrong, you're probably doing 100 times worse than I know. And I'm just done with you, mm-hmm. and I and I and I and and broke up. And I broke up with him. Yeah. Are you
2: still on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Why? I like Twitter. Because
3: it's just I mean, it's it's, a mess. Yeah, it's fun. I don't. I I can't actually. You know, I think that there are bad, obviously bad things that come of Twitter, but there's right. also a lot of good that yeah, comes of Twitter. Funny
2: memes and stuff like that.
3: But it's also as a person who's trying to, you know, I I you made fun of me for coming in with my mm-hmm. paper edition mm-hmm. of the New York Times. Yes, I did. But I also like Twitter, and yeah. I think that they're both pretty good technologies for delivering I, information. I agree.
2: I just haven't picked up a paper newspaper in 100 years.
3: And for, in my life, I kind of need them to complement one another because yeah. I get lost on Twitter well, all the time.
2: Good. So finishing up, what's your next book then? What are you f- going to focus on?
3: I'm focusing on work.
2: Future of work. You know, that's my big thing. I yeah. talk about that a lot. Yeah. Especially, I'm focusing on the tech company's responsibility in it, but it's, it's a critical how we're going to work—it's all affected by tech, AI, automation, robotics.
3: Totally. Yeah. So I'm—I'm not—I'm not doing this about tech per right. se. I mean, I, I kind it's of about tech. I know it is about tech, right. but tech is everything. Right. Um, <laughs> no, I'm—I'm I'm trying to do it about asking the question: Why is it that we work? Yes. And work as a source of meaning is something that's dignity, um, but we work all the time, and yet we're very unreflective about why we do it. And so as a consequence, both as individuals and collectively, we degrade the possibility of of gaining meaning from work. Mm -hmm. And if we focused on that, I think that we could make work a lot better for us as both the choices that we make individually, but also, That's a
2: great topic. By the way, you're only going to work three days a week going forward, just so you know. Your kids are definitely not working more than three.
3: I'm kind of psyched about that.
2: Really? You'll be dead by that time. Yeah. So you're going to work five, seven. But I, <laughs> I, thought,
3: I thought tech was going to deliver me immortality. No,
2: it's not going to do that for you. Maybe your kids, but not you. Never for you.
3: I thought the singularity was happening in my No, it's not. Let's not even get into that.
2: Frank, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Frank, where can we follow you online besides the Atlantic?
3: Oh, Twitter, O-t- at Franklin4.
2: At Franklin4, and it's, spell it for them. It's F-O-E-R. Yes. All right. Uh, now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media and check out Frank's book, World Without Mind. You can find that book on Amazon or wherever you want to buy it, um, and you can find- No Recode, judgment. No judgment. Uh, buy it wherever you want, and you can find Recode Media wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.